Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 10. Turn to your Bible to Romans chapter 10. And when you get there, you could stick your Bible marker in there and then flip to your left in your Bible to Luke chapter 6. And as I begin reading and studying Romans chapter 10, the Lord just kept putting on my heart what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6. So before we get into our text today this morning, I, I really feel like we need, to, we need to read that. And we need to see what Jesus is teaching his disciples because it really applies to the message today to all of us. And so in, in, in chapter 6, uh, it's mostly known for Jesus teaching the Beatitudes. But we're going to read verses 27 through 36 before we open to Romans 10. And here Jesus says, but I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. He says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. And to him who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. But give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do unto you, then you also likewise do unto them. And then he says here in verse 32, this is so important. He says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What credit? He says, for even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Speaking of believers. He says, for even the sinners do the same thing. And if you lend to those who you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend sinners and receive as much back. But Jesus says, I'd say, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he, God, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Paul the Apostle, in Romans chapter 10 here, Paul the Apostle knew that the very same people that plotted against Jesus and had him arrested, falsely accused, they had him beaten, had him scourged, had him brutally nailed to the cross. He knew that these same people would continue to persecute all who came in the name of Jesus, spreading the gospel message. See, this was the very message that would save Israel from their sins, not just cover their sins. But this message that they brought was offensive to many Jews, especially the leaders. This was an offensive message. Now, you have to remember that Paul himself was a Jewish religious leader also. But one day when Paul had evil on his heart and evil on his mind to do evil to God's people. He found himself on a road to a place called Damascus. And he was going with murderous intent in his heart towards those who were of Christ. Those who were found in the synagogues of Damascus that were teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was going to persecute them. He was going to murder them and put them in jail. We read that in Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 3. But Paul on his way. 
big surprise, on his way, Jesus meets him on that road. And in that time, in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 22, the Bible says that Paul was converted. Paul, from being a Jew, converted to Christianity. From a very religious background, he came and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Having said that, Paul had a special desire for the nation of Israel. He had a special desire for those that he left behind in the faith, those Jews that were serving with him, that were his family, that were his loved ones. It'd be like somebody here, you know, you've been congregating with these people so long and then you leave and you go elsewhere. You always have that heart, that desire for them. But Paul's eyes were opened. He was blind and now he saw. He cared enough to pray and share the gospel, the good news. He went back. He cared enough to pray and share with them regardless of what they thought of him and regardless of any consequences. You know, I could remember when I got saved. I remember when I, when I truly asked Christ into my heart. When That day when it happened. Remember, I was all alone in, in the Lord. I know the Lord did something. I remember. But because immediately after that, I felt like I had to tell people. I had to tell people what Jesus did for me. I had to tell my coworkers. I had to tell my family. I remember. But you know what? Not everybody was happy. Not everyone liked that I came telling them that I've given my life to, to Christ, that I'm a Christian now. I'm a believer. They weren't happy. I remember. I remember clearly, vividly going to work that following weekend. And I used to drink with all my friends from work. We used to drink. We drank so much that we would go out at lunchtime and drink, come back. Good thing they only gave us a half hour. We would have been crawling back. But I remember coming to work and telling them, hey man, um, I got to talk to you. And at break time, we sat down. And as we were eating, I was so nervous to tell them. I didn't know how to tell them. It was weird. It was easier to tell my mom. You know, My mom's cool. She loved me no matter what. But, but it was hard. It was difficult to tell my friend. I'm saying, why is it so difficult to tell this guy? And so I begin to tell him that I'm going to quit drinking, man. I, I can't run with you guys anymore. You know, you're still my friend, but I'm not going to do these things anymore. And, and remember, too, I, it, was, it was the most awkward feeling because we sat at that table and it was that awkward silence. And we just stared at each other. He, he just didn't know what to say. And then out of clear silence, he said, well, bro, better you than me. Let me know when you're back on the dark side, and then we'll go party some more, you know? And that was his attitude. That was his attitude towards it. But you know what? I, they continued to ridicule. They continued to talk at work, you know? Oh, man, this guy, you know? And the first thing I did is I put a Real Men Love Jesus sticker on my truck just so I could drive it up there, you know, so they can see it, you know? But regardless of the ridicule, regardless of... of you know, them not wanting to hang with me anymore, regardless of any kind of persecution that I thought. Like Paul, my desire for them was that they would be saved. They got to find out about this. You know, what happened to me, they need to know about this. Because this is, that's like you found something really amazing, like, a, like an amazing place to eat. What do you do? Oh, man, you got to have it, right? Someone tells you, I know where to get a good burrito. Well, guess what? I know where you get a better burrito. You know, and that's just how we are. And I just had to tell people, I just had to tell my family, they got to see this. But Paul, by receiving the free gift of God, of salvation through Jesus Christ, it made, him, it made him an enemy to his fellow countrymen. 
It made him their enemy. But Paul didn't stop loving them. That's what I love about this lesson today. It's a lesson for us today. Paul didn't stop loving them. See, Jesus taught us not just through his words, like we read in, in Luke t- chapter 6, not just to love her. And he didn't just teach us with words. He demonstrated it as he hung on the cross. He demonstrated it because what was the last thing that he did? He prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them after all they did. And yet today, we as believers, we're hanging on to things. There's people we don't talk to because they said something. You call that persecution. That's not persecution. We need to get beyond that. We need to have the unconditional love for them like Jesus did. And like Paul's attitude here that we're going to see. You see, it's not that Jesus saw Jews as his, the Jews as his enemy, but the Jews saw Jesus as their enemy. And that's the case with many people today, even religious people. You see, Jesus, you're, you're not his enemy. He loves you. He died for you. He might be your enemy. Why? Because you don't agree with his teaching. You don't agree with his words. You don't agree with anything he stands for. The world doesn't agree. The mere mention of his name makes people uncomfortable. The only time I hear his name these days is as as a cuss word. Everywhere you go. The person becomes hostile when somebody comes, when the Lord sends somebody to share a word, the gospel message with them, they become hostile. But he loves us. The Bible says that he created us in Genesis 1.27. He created every one of us in his own image. He loves us. And that he's not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3. He loves us so much regardless about how we feel about him. And God's plan always has been, still is, and always will be motivated out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. The sovereignty of God is this, that God chose man to deliver that message. He chose you and I to spread that message. There's nothing more impactful to the unbeliever, guys. There's nothing more impactful to the unsaved, to the unbeliever, than when a Christian practices what he preaches. Especially when it comes to the area of love. You know, yeah, you quit drinking. Yeah, you quit doing this. You quit doing that. But you you have no love, man. As Christians, when we fail to love, we can't expect the unbeliever to hear a single word you say. I think about the Peanuts movie. Womp, 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 womp. If you're an unloving Christian, that's how you sound. Maybe that's where he got it from, Charles Schultz. I don't know. But the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads the sinner to repentance. It's the goodness of God. Romans 2, 4. It's his goodness. You know, there's an old saying, you might have heard it, that says, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? Just words, man. We don't care, it's words. It's just words, it's mwah, mwah. Paul the Apostle, though, however, knew firsthand that the struggles that the practicing Jews would have in receiving the message of salvation. Paul knew firsthand because... He was in the same boat with them. But he loved them. And Paul, I love what he says here in in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, now then, 
we believers, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, employ you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ and we are to beg of those non-believers to be reconciled to God. That was Paul's attitude. But as we'll see in our text here, unfortunately, not all were happy to hear the message. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you something. God might have people in your life right now. That one guy, that one girl, that one person that keeps sharing with you. Just know this, that's God sent. That is God sent. Don't run from him. Don't be like the rebellious people that we're going to read of today. You see, the rebellious people that we're going to read of today, they didn't receive their Savior. They didn't receive their Savior. And it's not because they weren't told about Him. You know, the entire Old Testament Scriptures, their very Scriptures, from front to back, point to the coming of Jesus Christ, His ministry, His death and resurrection. And many Bible scholars will say that there are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus of Nazareth. Over 400. Their very own scriptures. But sadly, like today, too many years of religious tradition has been woven so deep into the heart of man that we just refuse to recognize. We can't recognize it. Their Savior that their very very own scriptures spoke of, they couldn't recognize because they were blinded by the religion. But when it came to the promise of the way of salvation, you know what they said? Like many today, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to establish it our way, and many people today have the same attitude when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You tell them the way. You tell them what Jesus said. You tell them what the Bible says. And they say, actually, me and God, we're actually good. We're cool. You know, I, I talked to him. And, you know, the big man upstairs, he, he knows my heart. And we have a thing. Well, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know about this whole I'm a good guy thing. I'm going to take Jesus' word for it. And so let's begin with chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Of Romans. Paul writes here, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God of Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they are being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Having not submitting to the righteousness of God. First, we see Paul's heart. His desire is what? His heart's desire is that they would be saved. That's where we come in. Our heart's desire for the lost should be that they would be saved. We should be praying every day. After service, we meet outside for those that we know that have walked away from the faith after every service. And you know what? We need to continue to do that, but we need to pray for those that never been to come to faith, that don't know Christ. That means that we need to have the same heart. You know, when we got saved, what happened was, and many of you guys know what I'm talking about, is when we get saved, man, a lot of times our friends, our family will cut us off. You know, we might have been in a circle 
And we're no longer in that circle anymore because we've, we've come to Christ. We've given our life to Christ. And we're just no fun anymore. You know, I remember when I first got saved. I just wasn't so much fun anymore. That's what they thought. <clears throat> but you know what? We also had to sever certain ties, right? We had to limit certain relationships. And we had to even cut some off completely because they were so unhealthy to our walk. But you know what? We never forget about those people, what he's saying here. <clears throat> what he's saying here, Paul is saying here, we never, we never forget about those people. We need to remember and pray for them there in verse 1. In verses 2, two and 3, this was their problem. They, see, we see the problem was with religion. They, they, they had a religion without a personal relationship. They had a zeal, the Bible says. Paul says that I could, te- I could testify on their behalf that they have a zeal for God, which is a great enthusiasm. They were excited to serve the Lord. They were excited to do things. They had great energy when it came to the things of God. And as a result, the problem is, is they began to establish it in their own righteousness, he says, refusing to submit to God's righteousness. You see, zeal for God is good for everybody. And we should all desire zeal for God. If you serve the Lord, man, it shouldn't be, I have to serve tonight. I hear that a lot. I caught myself. Caught my, I got to be there. I have to be there tonight. No, we should have a zeal. We get to be there tonight. We get to go serve the Lord this morning. We get to go serve the Lord tonight. Zeal is good. But it can't be without the knowledge of God. We have to know why. This is why, this is why here at Cornerstone that it's mandatory for all who serve to come to the leadership meetings. It's, all, it's mandatory, for those, mandatory for those who serve in the worship team. To, to be here for the musicians' fellowships. Because why? We study the Word of God and we understand what we do, why we do it. We want to make sure that all who serve God have a zeal, but it must be fueled by biblical truths of God. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. You see, zeal without godly knowledge is a works-based religion. I don't care where you go. It could happen here. It could happen anywhere. It wasn't just those people. It's always those people, but yet we can be just as guilty sitting here today. We don't get we don't we don't enter into his righteousness by our works. That's contrary to God's plan. Let's read verses four to eight. Listen to his plan. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about righteousness, which is of the law. Here's here's what he writes. He says that the man who does those things shall live by them. But the, righteous of, the righteousness of faith of, uh, speaks like this. It speaks this way. This is faith. It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith of which we preach. The word is near you. The Jews were so close to salvation that they could smell it. It was under their nose. Paul here gives them the difference between living righteously under the law and living righteously under the faith in Jesus Christ. He says the law is the law. It's works. You've got to obey it. But faith, righteousness through Jesus Christ, doesn't question God. He says, do not say, who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? What about this? What about that? How many times you share the gospel with people. And all they do is, well, what about this? 
Or what about that? You know, what about, what about life on Mars? What about the monkeys? What about, I don't care. That's not faith. You're looking for a sign. The only way is through Jesus Christ. Faith, true faith. He says, don't ask all these questions. In fact, he tells them that the very gospel message of salvation is right here, right under your nose. It's on your lips. It's on your heart. In other words, faith requires us to trust God's promises, the very message of receiving God's free gift of salvation by faith. The Jews didn't have faith in the promises of their own scriptures. And what does the Bible say about no faith? 11.6 of Hebrews says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What is this word of faith? What is this message that they were preaching, that they were teaching? Look at verses 9 through 13. Here was the message. The message is this, is that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, notice, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice verses 9 through 10. The heart and the mouth. With the heart one believes and with the mouth he confesses. You see, we can't have one without the other. Many times people are led to believe, and I've heard this even in, I've heard even Christians that, that they're led to believe that, man, if you could just get them to say this prayer, you know, hey man, do you, they ask them, do you want to receive the Lord Jesus? And it's like, eh, I don't know, that tells me you don't want to. Eh, you know, but just, just repeat this prayer. You know, just say this. And then, you know what, man, you're good to go. You're saved, you're washed, you're cleansed, and in. in and we got to be careful with that message. We can't give that message. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have to believe in our heart and with the mouth comes confession. We have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. I heard many years ago that Jesus either is who he said he is or he is the maddest, most craziest man that ever walked the earth. You decide what you want to believe. You have to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And with your mouth, confession can be made. There can be believing without confessing. James, 2, uh, James chapter 2, verse 9 says, you believe in one God? Well, good, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble at his name. I don't think the demons are saved. First, we must believe by faith in our heart. And as a result, we repent. We turn of our sin. We ask Christ. We confess. And in verses 11 through 13 of that, it says that whoever, I love that, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no, there is no distinction. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. And today, just like then, we have a multitude of people here from many different backgrounds, many different beliefs. 
And Paul's saying here, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, if you're a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're Mexican or whatever you are. It doesn't matter. You will not be put to shame when you call upon the name of the Lord. You will not be put to shame. I love that. In other words, God will push nobody away. You can come just like you are. You might think to yourself, or you might have been told, hey, you know what, man, you're, you're useless. I give up on you. Man, there's nothing, you know what, the life, the life that, that I've lived, man, you just don't understand what I've done. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know how I blaspheme God. Why would he ever forgive me? I could tell you this, that whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. That's all I can tell you. I don't care what you've done. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Unfortunately, like the Jews of that day, many today will refuse God's saving grace. But it's not out of ignorance. It's just flat out rejection. Let's look at verses 14 through 21. You know, I read, I read this. Um, I want to read this to you in the New Living Translation. It just, uh, it's just amazing. Listen to what he says. It says, but how can they call on him unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless if they have never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? And how will anyone go unless without being sent? This is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes good news for Isaiah, the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes by hearing, that is hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But then I ask again, is this, but did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke you to anger through foolish Gentiles. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. In verses 4 through 18, we see that none of their excuses are going to fly with God, and, and neither will ours. You know, they had all these excuses. But wait a minute. Uh, you know, how will they know? How will they hear? Um, how can they believe? How can they do this? How can they do that? Excuse after excuse after excuse. And that's the same thing. But I love what it says here. If you notice, it says, but not everyone welcomed it. That good news was brought to them, but not everyone welcomed it. And, and the reason this blessed me was because it tells me that some did. I'll take it. That some did. Not everyone received the good news. There was many there that needed it, but very few accepted it. That's why the second half of verse 15, what it says here, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? If, if one person comes to the Lord today when many need him. How beautiful is that? 
See, God was going to establish a relationship with the foolish Gentiles of the world to make Israel so jealous. Imagine Israel would have to sit and watch God give what was theirs to the foolish Gentile. Thank you, Lord. I'm a foolish Gentile. He had to sit there. The Jew would have to sit there and watch God pour out his spirit, his blessings, his love, his power onto the foolish Gentile. And man, the Jews of that day, they looked down on them. But God gave them what, what was supposed to be theirs. Why? He says to provoke them to jealousy. What kind of jealousy? The kind of jealousy that says, I want that. I want that. That was mine. You know, I have my, my two grandsons. You know, it's funny when they come over, the two little guys. If one doesn't want to eat his food or whatever he has, all I have to do is say, I'm going to give it to your brother. And that, it's like the end of the world. That's mine. And, and that's the kind of jealousy he's speaking of. It's, it's, it's like to, to say that, no, I want to get back what was mine to begin with. No, I don't want something that I never had. That was mine to begin with. You see, our lives, Christians, our lives, our marriages, our relationships with our children, in the same way should provoke the unbelievers in our lives to jealousy. And again, I'm careful with that word jealousy. I don't mean as to rub it in their face, right? A lot of times we think like, oh, he's going to be jealous of me. You know, not that kind of jealousy. You see, it, it, it's, it's not that I want him to want the things that I have. It's not that I want him to want my kids or my dog, whatever it is I have. But I want them to want a godly family. They need to say, look, man, they're going to notice, hey, you know, why do their kids speak different to them than my kids speak to me? What's up with that? You know, how, do, how is it that they honor their father and mother? You know, how is it that those two, they've been together so long, how is it that they're still holding hands? How is it that they still like to come home and have that time together? How is it that she's not rude to him when he deserves it? You know, how, how is that that he speaks kindly, kind words to her after all these years? And you know what the cool thing is? Is that, a Christian family, a true Christian family with God in the center, it doesn't matter what they're going through. Those things don't stop. But that's the kind of thing that we want them to desire. And this is why I was asked one time by someone, hey, dude, how do you do it, man? You've been with your wife for so long, and I see you guys, you know, messing around. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's cool. You know, I love messing with my wife. Kidney shots and... Now, how is it? What do you do? You know, and, and the thing is, is he knew he already knew. He knew why. He knew why we got along. He heard the stories of how she wanted to kill me at one point. But you know what? I just simply told him that God is the center of my family. dude. That's it. it it's, it's not it's not complicated that God is the center of my family. It's God. And then I have to let her think that she's right sometimes. But that's every marriage. Happy wife, happy life, right? Keep her happy. But, but, it's, but it's so that they could say, look, man, I want that. I want that godly life. Christians, that's how our marriages should be. Men, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not um, investing in that, you need to start today. Start investing in that. Wives, start investing in your husband. Why? So that they could see that the unbeliever could be provoked to a jealousy to say, I want that. But notice, sadly, we see in verse 21, 
But look, regarding Israel, it says regarding Israel, in the New Living Translation, he says, but I, I, all day long I had opened my arms, but they were a disobedient and rebellious people. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Bible says that it's by faith we are saved, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That tells us we cannot work for it. You see, today's message today in, the, in, these, in these verses in chapter 10, it's actually 50-50. Half of it's for the believer and half of it's for the non-believer. You see, for the believer has a responsibility to share the truth about Christ. And the unbeliever has a responsibility to respond to it. I want to share with you a story that I got from the, um, it's out of the Living Waters Ministry called The Way of the Master. And it's a story I heard a while back, and it, it, it impacted me. I just want to share it with you. It says, An experienced firefighter was recently charged with grave, grave neglect of duty. Prosecutors maintained that he had abandoned his responsibility when he failed to release rescue equipment. This resulted in the needless and tragic death of a family of five. Eyewitnesses were sickened when they discovered that the reason the firefighter remained locked in his emergency vehicle was simply because he was testing out a new high-tech CD player, which he maintained he had bought it as a gift for the fire chief. The fire chief immediately distanced himself from the defendant and dishonorably discharged him from the department. In a prepared statement, the chief said, there are no words to describe such betrayal of those that he was sworn to protect. The late prosecuting attorney argued for more than three minutes after arriving on the scene that the firefighter had earphones on as he listened to the CD while the family of five was screaming to be rescued from the sixth floor of the burning building. Horrified onlookers related that as flames licked her clothing, a mother cried out in terror and fell to her death while still clutching an infant in her arms. Other witnesses said that the father clutching two terrified children was engulfed by a massive flame. The terrifying drama took place in full view of the firefighter as he remained seated in the vehicle listening to the CD. The defense pleaded no contest, but added that the defendant went through great personal sacrifice to purchase the gift for the chief and that he had hoped that the judge would take that into consideration as he passed sentence. Many of you here can see the picture, I hope. See, many of us would like to think that if we were in that very situation, right, we would do the same thing, right? That we would, well, we wouldn't do the same thing, I'm sorry, that we would help that family. Imagine if you're in your home at, at one night and you're laying in bed and there's a glow outside your window. And you look out and it's your neighbor's house. Your neighbor's house, your roof, their roof is engulfed in flames and you're lying in bed. What are you going to do? You're going to roll over and go to bed because you got something to do the next day? No, we're going we're gonna to get out and we're going to tell them. We're going to run over there. We're going to tell them. You see, the fires of this world, the fires that can destroy your home, that can destroy family, that can take lives, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to think of. But it doesn't measure up to the eternal fires. The fires which the Bible speaks of, spiritually speaking. 
If we as Christians do nothing to warn the man or woman about eternal separation from God, if we don't tell them about the lake of fire and hell which is to come, we're like that firefighter. We're just like him. And when we heard the story, we're like, oh, how could he? Right? But if we don't warn them, we're the same way. Ezekiel gave a stern warning to the, to the child of God. In Ezekiel 3.18, it says, God speaking through Ezekiel, he says, if I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but if you fail to deliver that warning and they die in their sins, God says, I will hold you responsible for their deaths. This is why in Mark 16, Jesus said, go out and preach the gospel to every creature, everyone you can. How many times do we hear about a good Samaritan, right? Uh, Driving up to an accident and the car is engulfed in flames, you know, and they go in and they rip those people out of there, just barely saving them. But what happens? They get burned themselves. They get burned, man. Some people, I've heard interviews where the guy was like, yeah, man, you know, I saw the flames. I went in there and, you know, I didn't even know I was getting burned. And he had to be treated. But he didn't know. He didn't care. All he cared about was that life. But if we would be concerned with people's souls, we would be warning everyone, even at the risk of being burned ourselves. But unfortunately, we're too concerned that we're going to look like Jesus freaks. Oh, he's a Jesus freak, man. Oh, you know what? I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to be that guy. You know, they're minding their own business. They're having a great weekend. They're out having a good time. Why would I want to go up and ruin their day and tell them about Jesus, right? We don't want to bother anybody. Salvation is far too important to worry about those things. There's a difference between pounding on your neighbor's door at 2 o'clock in the morning because you need a cup of sugar. You ever borrow something from your neighbor? You know, imagine at 2 o'clock in the morning you come pounding on their door and, you know, the guy gets up and he's like, what's going on? I need sugar. You're going to get punched. (laughs) Right? But if his roof is on fire and he's asleep and his family's in there and I don't care how hard I pound on that door, he's going to be forever grateful. I'm forever grateful for those that shared the gospel of Christ with me. Because I know where I was heading. You see, I'm not offended. I'm not offended by someone banging on my door because my house is on fire. You see? So we need to have that same attitude. You know, uh, Jesus' main concern for people was salvation. That was why he came. He came to seek those who were lost and save them. Uh, Luke 19.10. His motivation was love. Paul the Apostle says this about preaching the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For it is necessity is laid it upon me. He says, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He didn't do it because he, 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 had, he had to in his heart, not because he was pushed into doing it. The unbeliever today. The unbeliever here is without excuse. See, the unbeliever can't say, I didn't know. Nobody told me. I didn't know what was going on. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
If, if you look up that word all in the Greek, you know what it means? Anyone? Anyone? All. <laughs> all. All have sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But Isaiah warns us. He tells us that our sin in Isaiah 59 too says that sin separates us from God. And since we've all sinned, and since sin separates us from God, we, got, we have something else here now we have to look at. Is that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. If the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned, and sin separates us from God, we have a huge dilemma on our hands. We have something that we need to deal with. It's like, what's that saying, the, the elephant in the room? Is that it? Is that it? The elephant in the room. We don't want to talk about it. It's just there. But we need to. We need to address it on this side of the grave. Because the other thing is the Bible does say that, that God is a righteous judge. It says that he will judge the world in all righteousness. And he shall administer judgment of his peoples in uprightness. Our God is a perfect judge. He's not corrupt like our judges of the land. He's a perfect God and he will judge rightfully. And the Bible said that sin must be punished. Imagine you are standing in a courtroom. And you're there to defend yourself. But you're found guilty. You're guilty as charged. There's nothing you can do. And the judge passes down. The fine. And the fine is outrageous. The fine is ridiculous. And as it is, you don't make a lot of money anyway. You, you work like a Chick-fil-A or something. Just kidding. Probably half of you here do. <laughs> but imagine, you don't have the money to pay that fine. And that fine is so great that the, you have to tell the judge, Your Honor, I can't pay it. I don't have the money to pay it. So the judge calls on the bailiff and says, Cuff him. Put him in jail. But imagine in the, at the last minute, just as you're being cuffed, somebody from the back of the courtroom says, Your Honor, hold on. I got this guy's payment. I'm going to pay his fine. Take the cuffs off him. I got it. In the same way, Jesus did the same thing for your sin. We are all guilty now imagine if you were that guy in that courtroom, would you refuse that offer? Did it, would it matter that if you knew him or not? You're going to jail. No, it wouldn't matter. He's going to pay your fine. You see, we're guilty. And on that day, we will be judged for our sin, but those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who, call upon, those who believe on him will not be put to shame on that day. If you believe in and put your faith in Jesus Christ on that day, as you stand before the Lord, Jesus will stand there and say, he's mine. He's mine. I paid it. I paid the price for his sin. So as Jesus was crucified and hung on that cross, the Bible says that he took on the sins of all the world. And now that when we do stand before that righteous judge who has to punish sin, He's going to look and say, oh, his, son, his sin has already been dealt with. My son paid for his sin. Of all people, my son. 
We will stand before the Lord one day, and Jesus will either say, He's mine, I paid the price for him. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He's going to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or, He's going to say, Depart from me, those who practice such lawlessness. He says, I never knew you, he'll say. And so the choice is to be made today. Again, the message is for the believer and the non-believer. Believers, it's important that we share our faith with the lost. Souls are at stake, but out of love. We can either push them away or bring them to the Lord. It's his goodness that leads them. For the unbeliever, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not guaranteed anything. They say, what, death and taxes, right? It's going to happen one day. But we need to be found in the righteousness, not of the law, not in the righteousness of what we've done, not in the righteousness of any works that we've done, but in righteousness of faith through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word, God. Father, we thank you that you don't complicate it, Lord. God, we thank you that your message of salvation is so simple, God. And it's so not religious, Lord. Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts up this morning, God. Father, that you would stir up the heart of the believer that's here today, Lord. And, and God, that maybe, there, there's, maybe they're holding a grudge, Lord. Maybe they have something, God, against somebody, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would stir their hearts up, Lord, to make things right, God, for salvation is the most important thing, Lord. Father, I pray that you would break our pride, Lord. Whether we've been wrong, Lord. Jesus said, if, if, if a man slaps you, look, give him the other cheek. So, Father, I pray for the believer, Lord. The believer that's struggling, Lord, with those things. That you may be able to use them, Father, to further your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray for the non-believer, God. Those that are here, Lord, that maybe even grew up in the church, Lord, but find themselves with a zeal for God, without a relationship. Father, those that have done things their own way, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that if, if they don't know you this morning, God, that they would leave different, that they would leave knowing you, knowing that they know you. So, Father, I pray, God, stir our hearts this morning now, Lord. Stir our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, I pray, God, as a worship, as the worship team leads us in this time, Lord, for those that don't know you, this time is for you. This is your opportunity. When Jesus called his, his disciples, he would call them publicly. When Jesus called his disciples, he would call them out in the open. And the Bible says that they, they immediately would get up and come. And this is why we offer the invitation publicly, openly. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has spoken to your heart, man, I don't care young or old who you are, religious or not, and you need, you need Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to get up now as we have this time of worship. Come up to the front here and I'll meet you there. And we're going to pray together. We're going to ask Christ, Come into your heart. 
So if God has stirred you up, don't wait. You get up and come as we worship.